What an amazing song filled with uh, so much hope and truth about the gospel that we share. But sometimes I've, I sit in church and I wonder, and I remember growing up thinking this, can God actually use me? Right? We get often on Sundays people paraded up to the front of the stage and uh, they're missionaries or they're pastors or they're, you know, they've been part of camps or something and you're like, wow, I'm glad that God has raised up people like that to build his kingdom. That's not me. I don't know if God can use me. Maybe I'm just a number in the crowd. I fill up a chair on a Sunday morning so that the church looks full, so that when visitors come, it looks like something's really going on here. But that's basically all I can do. I don't know if any of you have ever felt that way. Can God actually use me? I think if we're honest, we all have probably thought something like that at some point. Unsure of our significance, of what we can do. Well, currently, we're going through a series in the Gospel of John. And uh, we're looking at this series on the miraculous signs of Jesus. There's seven recorded in the Gospel of John. And the title of the series is That You May Believe, The Miraculous Signs of Jesus in the Gospel of John. And if you've been here for a few weeks, you'll know that kind of our theme verse for this series is from John 20, verses 30 and 31, where John records, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written, so including what we've read this morning, what we'll look at this morning, these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you might have life in his name. So the backbone of the Gospel of John, you could say, are these seven miracles that are distributed throughout the book and that climax in the greatest miracle, the resurrection of Jesus. Today we're looking at the feeding of the 5,000. It's a familiar story to most of us. Many of us know this and probably have read it many times in our lives. One little... Uh, Interesting fact, though, that you may not be aware of if you're going to Bible trivia later tonight. This is the only story in all of the Gospels, aside from those in the last week of Jesus' life, that is recorded in all four of the Gospels. So apart from the stories, the, the, the Holy Week from the Palm Sunday up to the death and resurrection of Jesus, those stories are in all, all four of the Gospels. But this is the only other one the birth of Jesus, think of all the famous stories. This is the only other one that's in all four Gospels. So there's something that all four Gospel writers thought, this needs to be included in my account. And there's some very interesting specific details that John records that aren't in the other ones that I think we'll focus on this morning. The most important thing we'll note this morning, though, is that by miraculously feeding 5,000 men with five loaves and two fish, Jesus is demonstrating that he is the Messiah, the Son of God. And I hope that as we look at this passage this morning, one of the things you'll walk away with is that God not only can use you for his purposes, but that he desires to use you for his purposes. You don't have to be really smart. You don't have to know a lot of things. You don't have to be really rich. You don't have to be really good looking. But you just have to have and take what you have and place it in the hands of Jesus. And he can multiply that for amazing impact. So let's look now together what really happened or what happened in this very familiar story. 
So I encourage you to have your Bibles out. And again, it's been read for you. Um, Those Bibles in the the chairs in front of you if you don't have one. But John chapter 6. Let's look at verses 1 to 4 to start here. The context of the miracle. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed the far shore of the Sea of Galilee. That is the Sea of Tiberias. And a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs he had performed by healing the sick. Then Jesus went up on the mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover was near. So it starts by saying sometime after this. So what was it that is ta- we're talking about here that has already happened? Well, last week, Pastor Chris Ullman, he preached on uh, the healing of the paralyzed man. That was at the beginning of John 5. Now, what we kind of see in the rest of John 5 is that Jesus is interacting with some of the Jewish leaders and he's talking with them about who he really is. Is he just a man or is he something more? In the last few verses of chapter 5, we read Jesus saying in verse 45, he says this to the Jewish leaders, but do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. Your accuser is Moses, on whom your hopes are set. If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But since you do not believe what he wrote, how are you going to believe what I say? So in these verses in the second half of chapter 5, Jesus is making a case that all of the Old Testament, it points forward to him. Moses, their hero, the Jewish hero, he was speaking about Jesus. So we're set up here as we're entering chapter 6 in the story that we've read with this question that John wants his readers to be considering. Is Jesus truly greater than Moses? And why can he say that? Is he just another prophet? Or is he something more? In verse 2, we see that this crowd, there's a large crowd, and they follow Jesus across the sea. Why are they following him? Why are they following Jesus at this point? It's because they've acknowledged that he's the Savior. They've acknowledged their own sinfulness. And they think they need to come to him to confess their sins. Not a chance. They're there because they've seen him do miracles. There's like a cool show, like the circus is in town, and I want to follow and see what Jesus is doing. He's healed a few people. What's he going to do next? This is fun stuff. They aren't following him because they've really thought deeply about the teachings in the Sermon on the Mount, and they want to hear more. No, they want to see him pull out his fireworks and do more signs. They want more entertainment. If you want a crowd, entertain them. Don't teach them hard things. Entertain them. Get out the fireworks and show them something cool. That's why they're following Jesus at this point, because of his signs, it says. But Jesus isn't concerned as much with the crowd as he is with his disciples. We see that in verse 3. It tells us that Jesus went up on the mountainside and he sat with his disciples. In Mark's gospel, we learn that this was a solitary place that Jesus took them. His desire was just to be with them, not to entertain a crowd. In fact, in Mark 6, if you read the passage there, it says he was taking them to a solitary place for rest. In the Gospel of Mark, he had just sent them out on their mission trip, the 12 of them. They've gone out, now they've come back to Jesus and they're pumped, and Jesus is wanting to pull them aside for some rest. He's not focused on the crowd. He's focused on his disciples. Verse 4, the last detail in our introduction, tells us that this was the time of the Passover. The Jewish Passover, as you know, was the time where Jews from all over the world came to Jerusalem to remember the time in their history where God brought them out of Egypt and into the Promised Land. It reminds them 
that God, when God struck down the firstborn sons of all of Egypt, he passed over the sons of Israel because they had painted the blood of the lamb on their doorposts. So when John mentions the Passover, we see that again and again, he's trying to tie in Jesus and the, what he is doing to the life of Moses. In fact, there's about five allusions to the life of Moses in the first four, four verses of John 6. Can you see them there? Jesus crossed over to the other side of the sea. We remember Moses led his people through the Red Sea. A great crowd was following Jesus. We remember that Moses led a great crowd of people. Jesus was doing miraculous signs, it says. Moses did many signs before Pharaoh to prove God's power. Jesus went up on the mountain. Moses went up on the mountain to commune with God and receive his law. And again, the events take place during Passover. Jesus is walking in the footsteps of Moses here, and the crowd sees that. And so what we'll see is that the great multitude that Jesus feeds later in this passage, they see this connection, and they get excited about it. But let's, let's look uh, first at verses 5 and 6, which I think are the two key verses in this whole passage. When Jesus looked up and he saw this great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test them. We already had in mind what he was going to do. We learn in verses 5 and verses 6 that Jesus asks Philip, where are we going to get the bread to feed this crowd? And all the other gospel accounts, the disciples, they're the ones coming up to Jesus saying, it's getting late, Jesus, send them away, right? They're going to be hungry. There's no food out here. Send them away. But John includes this detail that Jesus specifically wanted a moment alone with Philip, and it was to test him. In my opinion, again, as I've studied this passage, I think these are the key to the passage, especially for us today. This gets really to the heart of why Jesus performed this miracle. Jesus wants to teach his disciples something here, and he also, by inference, wants to teach us something very important here. One of the key things I think that Jesus wants to teach us in this event is that he has a purpose in all that he does. In everything that Jesus does, he has a purpose in it. The testing of Philip reminds us that God has a purpose in all that he does, and he has a purpose then in all that he brings your way. When you look at any passage in the Bible, you need to ask the question, what does this passage teach me about the character of God? So this is in your own personal devotions when you're reading a passage. What does this teach me about God's character? Again, I think one of the main things we learn here in the story of the feeding of the 5,000 is that God has a purpose in everything he does. We may not understand what's going on, but God is always aware of what he is doing. Many of you today are probably going through some things and you don't know what God is doing. It could be a relationship issue. Someone in your family or a neighbor, a coworker. It could be a financial concern that you have. It could be a health concern that has come your way that you're just wondering, God, why? Have you sent this to me? What are you doing in this? 
Why are you allowing this to happen? In all probability, on this side of eternity, you may never discover God's purpose in your present trial. But you need to know and believe God has a purpose in your trial. And his purpose is certain. He knows why you're going through it. And he has a purpose for it. And if you could understand what God was doing in it, you may even rejoice in the trial that he sent your way. This is why Paul could write in Romans 5 verse 3, we rejoice in our sufferings. This is the Christian way. We have sufferings that come our way and we can rejoice in them. This is strange to the world who doesn't have a God who knows all things and walks with them through all things. We rejoice in our sufferings. As it is for us now, our thoughts are far below God and we don't always understand his ways. Sometimes God could be testing our faith just like he is here with Philip. And like Philip, we need to trust that God has a purpose in all that he does. Another thing I've looked at and thought about is that why did Jesus specifically ask Philip this question? We don't know much about Philip. He's not a star character in the Gospels. Why Philip? Well, one of the things we do know about Philip is that he was from the town of Bethsaida. In Luke's account of this event, we learn that this event was taking place in Bethsaida. So this is taking place in Philip's hometown. When I think of our hometown, when I think of the city of Hamilton, there are many things that I love about it. There's probably many things that you love about our city. I love all the trails that we have for hiking. I love the waterfalls. I love that there's so many great restaurants. Now, most of them are downtown. I wish more of them were on the mountain, but you know, to drive downtown to go to the good restaurants here in Hamilton. But there's also many things in the city of Hamilton that I know need to be changed. There's so many people in our city experiencing homelessness. I can't look at my Hamilton Spectator app and go more than two or three days without seeing that a pedestrian has been hit by another car in our city. I think of some of the godless ideologies that are being taught at the schools that my kids go to. And I think about how many people in Hamilton are living completely unaware of a God who is desperately in love with them. And so I think, who is going to change these things? Is God going to send someone from Halifax? Is God sending someone from Kitchener to come here and change our city? No, if God is going to change our city, he's going to do it by people of our city. We need to be concerned with the city that God has placed us in. We need to have a love for the people of the city of Hamilton. This is why Jesus calls out to Philip. He's from Bethsaida. He's in his hometown. Philip, what are we going to do? How are we going to feed all these people? This is your home. When God is going to use somebody, he's going to use someone who has a heart for that place. And I think we as a church need to have a heart for our city. Jesus expects us to have a heart for our city. We need to be the ones that are going to be the ones that care for the needs that we see around us. Not just wish they were changed, but be a part of the change. 
So how does Philip, though, respond to this question of Jesus? Jesus asks him, how are we going to feed all these people, Philip? Philip answers him in verse 7. It would take more than half a year's wages, or eight, eight months' wages, or 200 denarii, depending on the translation you have, to buy enough bread for each one to even just have a bite. Philip responds by demonstrating he's not thinking properly about who he's talking to. He's looking to earthly resources, not heavenly resources. He thinks that Jesus is asking him because of his problem-solving abilities. Philip quickly determines that it would take, you know, eight months' wages to feed all these people. He's probably maybe proud of that, that he's come up with that so quickly. But Jesus doesn't want problem-solving from Philip. Jesus doesn't want food from Philip. He wants faith from Philip. Philip began to look at the number of people there, and he just did a quick cost assessment. Again, humanly speaking, eight months' wages— what should he have done? He probably should have looked to Jesus and said, Lord, you know, I've seen you heal numerous people now. Lord, I've seen you turn water into wine. Surely you can provide for all these people something for them to eat. But it's easy for us to say, isn't it, what Philip should have done? Because how quickly are we, when we find ourselves in a situation we are overwhelmed with, where do we go? Straight to the Lord? Or do we start thinking about how we could solve the problem? I want to think about how I can get everyone in small, in, at West Highland into a small group. How am I going to do this, Lord? I don't have enough groups. We don't have enough small group leaders right now. I start to calculate. What am I going to have to do? What budget will I need? I start to get discouraged. Oh, people don't want to be in a small group. They don't have time for, for being involved in community. I just get overwhelmed by this task. How often, when I am overwhelmed by a task that Jesus has asked me to do, do I not look back to Jesus for the answer? Most often, I think, when we're overwhelmed by a task, we're just like Philip. We start to think about how we can solve the problems that are in front of us with our own ingenuity. In this story, I think Jesus wants Philip to be overwhelmed by the task, to feel that sense of overwhelmingness so that Jesus can then demonstrate his power to Philip, and so that Philip's faith could be increased. And I think in our own lives, when we find ourselves in situations we're overwhelmed with, I think it's because God wants us to look to him in those moments and to see our faith increase as he provides in ways that we can't see right now with our own eyes, when we're looking with the eyes of faith to Jesus. As we move on in the story, we see in verse 8 and 9, Andrew comes, and he's got an idea. Another one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here's a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish, but how, how far will they go among so many? You know, I've been thinking a lot about Andrew this week as well, and thinking, I'm not sure what he was thinking here, to be honest. Like, did he have faith that Jesus could do it? He brings the boy's lunch to Jesus. So that's, I guess, good that he did that. But it's kind of like, hey, Jesus, I got an idea. But it's, it's not a very good one, though. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm just like, what is Andrew doing? I, I don't know. I, someone could tell me afterwards what Andrew's doing. But anyways, the point is, the five loaves and the two fish, they end up in Jesus' hands. This is a good thing. 
most likely it was actually the boy that probably saw that was going on and offered his lunch, right? It's not like Andrew was scouring, thinking, oh, this looks like it's going to feed people. The boy was actually the one that probably had the faith to bring it to Jesus. So at this point in our passage, we've got this massive crowds of peop- crowd of people. You know, it's, it's thousands. It says 5,000 men, but that just means men. That doesn't include the women and the children. This could be 12, 15, 20,000 people that Jesus is about to feed here. There's not much hope, though, at this point, because all we have is these five loaves and two fish. But we do have Jesus, and as we'll see, this is more than enough. So let's look at verses 10 to 13, the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus said, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, and they sat, and they sat down. About 5,000 men were there. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they, had, when they all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the barley loaves that, had been, that were left over by those who had eaten. Let's not lose the wonder of what just happened here. We're used to this story. Jesus fed 5,000 men. Again, this could be 15,000 people that were fed by five small barley loaves. This isn't, this isn't even Wonder Bread-sized loaves. This is just little cakes, five of them, and two small fish. It's like sardines. They're just a little side snack. They're not like, you know, the big fish and chips when you go to a, an English uh, a restaurant that offer the fish and chips. No, this is just something so small. It fed 15,000 people. This is like the average attendance at like NHL or NBA games. This is like, this is insane. This actually happened. Let's not lose the wonder of this. Jesus is literally multiplying this food as he's going to groups of 50 seated here and 100. And some is being passed out. And as he passes out, there's just more. There's just still more. Five loaves and two fish goes to the next group. This aisle here. Boom, boom, boom. Feeding everybody. Next aisle. There's still more. How does he do this? This is Jesus. This is miraculous. We just get so used to reading this story and it's just like, oh, he fed 5,000 people. That's pretty cool. This is, this is wild. Everyone in the crowd is eating all that they want and there's still leftovers. I'm not sure if you've been to one of these like little social gatherings where food is put out and you see there's the plate and you're going to go get a plate and grab some. You're kind of looking at what's on the table, and you're like, okay, there's about 20 of us here, and this is what I see on the table. How much can I take, especially if I'm going through first? <laughs> kids, kids don't care, right? They're just like, oh, there's 20 chicken nuggets, I'll take 10, doesn't matter who's behind me. <laughs> but when you come to a party, and Jesus is catering, there is more than enough for everybody. You don't, the first person doesn't need to start with just two slices of pizza. They can have all the pizza they want. Jesus, when he is providing the food, bring Tupperware, okay? Because there's going to be lunch for tomorrow. Eat all that you want. Verse 13 says there's plenty of leftovers. 15,000 people fed, plenty of leftovers. Started out with five loaves of bread and two fish. This is wild. This is amazing. 
The 12 baskets left over, there's significance here. And you, and you know that, right? There's significance in 12 baskets full left over. There's two main reasons for significance here. One, it's for the people. They're, they're, they're Jews. They're people of Israel. There's 12 baskets left over representing the 12 tribes of Israel. For them, Jesus is going to be the one to provide for every single one of them. But there's also 12 baskets representing the 12 disciples. Imagine Philip. Again, before this, he's like trying to count how we're going to feed all these people. This is going to take eight months' wages. And now here he is seeing this massive crowd that's just been fed. And now not only has everyone been filled to the full, he's gathering leftovers more than he saw initially. He, again, he was thinking about his own mind and ingenuity. He's, now he's probably thinking, I should have looked to Jesus. Of course Jesus can do this. But again, how often are we like that as well? The crowd reacts to this in verses 14 and 15. When they saw what he was done, they knew that he was someone special. But they didn't think he was a magician they believed him to be a prophet. Look what it says in verse 14. After they, people saw the sign, so this specific sign Jesus performed, they begin to say, surely this is the prophet who has come into the world. Jesus is not just anyone, but he's the prophet that's come into the world. There's something specific that they're saying here. The Jewish people, they were expecting a prophet. They were expecting someone who's going to be special, like Moses, but greater. There's many places in the Old Testament that you can look to for stuff like this. But I want to point out one from the Old Testament and one from somewhere that's not in the Old Testament. Some uh, extra-biblical writing in Jewish times. The first is, though, from Deuteronomy 18, verse 15. Moses is speaking to his people, and he tells them, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you. So it's going to be of, of Israel. We know that G that's Jesus. From your brothers, it is to him you should listen. So don't look, Moses is saying, don't look to me. The ultimate one you're going to listen to is to come. They're waiting for this prophet that is to come. And so the people of God, they've been expecting this prophet like Moses. And that's why John, in the first four verses, he's saying, Jesus is leading the crowd. He's doing signs. He's going up the mountain. This is, there's a connection to Passover time. Everything is about how he is this prophet that's been prophesied, the one that's to come. But another reason they think Jesus is the prophet is to come was from another Jewish writing that's not even included in the Bible, but one that would have been familiar to Jews. It was written in the time between the Old and New Testaments, and it's called Second Baruch. And there's a prophecy written in there to the Jews saying, in, these, in those days the Messiah will appear and feed them with bread from on high. So they have this writing and they're saying, this prophet, we're expecting someone who's going to feed us with bread from on high. And then here comes Jesus. A great crowd follows him into the wilderness. He goes up the mountain and he feeds them at Passover with bread from on high. It's no wonder, for, verse 14 says, when they saw this sign that Jesus performed, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who has come into the world. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus sees what's going on here, though. And in verse 15, it says, Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and take him by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. 
Again, he, Jesus, he's not concerned with the crowd. This is like, it seems crazy that he's not just like, all right, let's start building a church here. Let's, 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 let's build something here. We've got 5,000 people, we've got 5,000 men plus women and children. Like, this is a, a mega church. Let's go, right? But he's not. He goes and wants to withdraw with them or draw from, withdraw from them. It's because the crowd wanted to make them into his, into some, into a political leader, basically. They wanted, they, they thought, this is like Moses. And what did Moses do for us? Well, he, he brought us out of captivity. And now the Jews are under the captivity of the Romans. And they're like, well, we want out of captivity too. So Jesus, you're our king now, right? Let's fight Rome. The people aren't concerned with the spiritual blessings and freedom that Jesus is offering them. They just want the earthly blessings and the earthly freedom. And so that brings us to the end of our passage here. We want to take a few minutes now and just say, what does this mean for us today? Hopefully there's been some points that you've taken already, but I want to really drill in here. What does this mean for us looking back here today? The first thing is believe in Jesus and have life. Believe in Jesus and have life. Remember the theme verse of our whole sermon series here. But these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. This story isn't included in John's gospel so that I'd have a bedtime story to read to Haddon that night. The story was written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. He's not just a good moral teacher. He's the Messiah. And we're called to believe in him and have life in his name. But I think, again, we're like the crowd. We're, when we put ourselves in this story, we are like this crowd. We're like Philip in many ways, but we're also like the crowd. We're very fickle. Later in John chapter 6, this same crowd that saw Jesus do all this and that were saying, Let's, you should be king, Jesus starts to teach them some difficult things about the gospel. And then what is, how does the crowd respond to that when Jesus starts teaching these difficult things? They leave. They walk away. Jesus, you're done with your signs now? All right, well, if you're just going to be teaching us things, then we're out. And then uh, Jesus turns to Peter. He says, are you going to leave too? And then Peter responds with just one of the most beautiful statements in the whole of the Bible. He says, Lord, to whom should we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. Disciples of Jesus don't just follow him for the signs. They follow him because he's the only one that has life. There's, life, there's nowhere else that you can go for life other than Jesus. And so my invitation for many of you here this morning or some watching online, you may have never trusted in Christ as your Lord and Savior. You never personally said, you know, he's more than just a good teacher. He's more than just the founder of this church that I go to. He's, he's the author of life. There's, there's nowhere else I can go. Look to Jesus and live is the first thing that I take from this. Believe in Jesus and have life. The second thing I would say is when you're overwhelmed, trust in God to provide. I think we each need to ask ourselves, when something 
hits me that's overwhelming, where's the first place I go? And I hope it's to the Lord in prayer and to, just to entrust the overwhelming circumstance of your life. Again, that relationship that you just don't know what to do with or the health concern you have or the financial concerns, whatever it is. But don't go first to your own human ingenuity like Philip did. Look to Jesus first in faith. I've been, as I'm thinking a lot about this passage this week, I keep thinking, this story only has 15 verses, and yet so much of it is dedicated to Jesus and Philip, as opposed to, like, the miracle. Like, why don't we have more details? What, what was this crowd saying? What was this crowd? Like, how did they do it? When did it actually turn from bread and get multiplied? When he prayed or when he, as it was being handed out? Like, those would be great details. But John gives us this instance with Jesus and Philip. And I think it's because God doesn't just want us to see that Jesus is omnipotent, that he can do all things, that he can miraculously provide, but he wants us to know that when we find ourselves in overwhelming situations, just like Philip found himself in, we need to look not to our own calculations, but first look to Jesus. Jesus already knows what he's going to do in the situation you find yourself in. And then the third thing, allow God to use you to do great things. I began this message by asking, have you ever wondered, can God actually use me? Have you thought that? Can I do something special with my life? This miracle tells us we don't have to be much or have much to be used in mighty ways by Jesus. Jesus didn't have a fast food franchise that just was spurting out food to everyone that was there. He had five loaves. This is, this is much, we have much more than five loaves and two fish. Whatever you have, what time do you have? What little time do you have that you can give to the Lord? What little talent that you, do you have that if you used for God and his kingdom, could he multiply? What little treasure do you have? Like the, the widow's might when she put those two copper coins in the offering, and Jesus said she gave far more than anyone else because she gave out of what little she had, whereas everyone else gave out of their abundance. Everybody here has some little treasure that they can give to the Lord's work to be multiplied for an, a great impact. Little is, it's, is not much when it's in our hands, but when we place it into the hands of Jesus, our little can multi be multiplied to impact thousands. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you for this, this passage in your word this morning. I thank you that it reminds us of so many massive truths for us today. God, that you always have a purpose in the trials we find ourselves in. God, that you want us to have a heart for our city. Like Jesus, you wanted Philip to have a heart for his own town. God, I pray that for those here this morning that may have never looked to you for life, God, I pray that they would look to you and believe this morning. I pray that thinking about your power and might, this miracle that you did, would be proof that you are more than just a man, that you're more than just a good moral teacher, that you're more than a prophet, but that you are the Messiah, the Son of God. Jesus, help us to trust you when we find ourselves in these difficult circumstances. Look to you first, not to our own ingenuity. And Lord, I, as well, I just pray that you would just put on our hearts 
what is that little that we have that we're holding on to, whether it be time, talent, or treasure, that you want us to place into your hands that you might multiply it for your kingdom's impact? We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. And uh, we look to a God that's... Uh, that can do all things. And so I just want to leave you with this from Ephesians 3:20. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. <laughs>